0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein. And Damien Garday is off this week.
0: It's Thursday, November 4th. And here's what we're going to talk about this week.
1: Congress appears to be moving forward with drug pricing legislation. But like everything else in D.C., the scope and terms of the legislation are complicated. STAT's Rachel Kors joins us to sort out the sausage making.
0: And John Maraginori, the longtime CEO of El Nylum Pharmaceuticals, joins us to chat about his decision to retire from the company and what he's doing next.
1: We start with some news from The Week in Biotech, but first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT. I'm here with Chris Banco, the CEO of Conexa, a software company that powers patient-centric research. Chris, why is putting patients at the center of the drug development process
2: important? Thanks, Angus. At Conexa, we're revolutionizing effect detection in clinical trials by building health measures that matter to patients. We're a pioneer in using technologies such as wearable sensors and mobile health tools to build digital biomarkers that can accelerate drug development. When partnering with sponsors to design a new measure, we gain patients' input on how their symptoms should be reflected in addition to hearing expectations and experience with the technology being considered. Doing this matters because it builds shared commitment to the program objectives, which improves participation. Moreover, it helps ensure the data we gather is both meaningful and useful to assessing the potential of a new therapy. For more information about Conexa, visit connexahealth.com That's K-O-N-E-K-S-A Health.com.
1: So, Meg, as always, there's COVID vaccine news this week. Uh, Tell us about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, probably the the biggest news, especially for parents of kids between ages 5 and 11, is that uh, the whole sign-off happened. There was a big CDC advisory committee meeting on Tuesday about Pfizer and BioNTech's vaccine for this age group. The CDC director then adopted their unanimous vote, and kids have already started getting the vaccine. So, you know, there's a lot of pent-up demand among very eager parents right away, and some are even frustrated that they couldn't get uh, appointments immediately. Um, but, you know, we're going to see it kind of... Uh, peter out, probably. We're going to see that initial huge demand from parents. And then we know from polling that, you know, maybe 60% of parents are either on the fence or don't want to get the vaccine for their kids. So we're in a period where a lot of kids are starting to get their first shots and maybe fully protected by Christmas, um, but then others are really going to hold off. But there's a big hope that this will not only protect kids, as it was pointed out, that this is a top 10 cause of death in kids in this age group, um, but that it'll also help them get back to school if disruptions to in-person learning and and help us kind of reach um, a kind of lower rate of transmission in general in the pandemic. So that's very exciting. As for parents of even younger kids like me, we're still going to have to wait a little while. Pfizer, uh, in its earnings update, said they'll have data for kids down to age two by the end of the year and in the first quarter for um, babies down to six months. But it's not clear how much safety data and safety follow-up they'll need to be able to file. So that is at least a few months off.
1: And Moderna reported third quarter earnings uh, this morning as we were getting ready to podcast. Uh, and the numbers look a little bit worse than people expected.
0: Yeah, this was a big surprise. And it really drove Moderna's stock down on Thursday morning. Um, essentially, they they lowered their uh, outlook for this year, now predicting that they'll deliver 700 to 800 million doses this year. That's down from 800 million to a billion they were predicting to deliver. Um, and then they lowered their product sales forecast, too, to 15 billion to 18 billion dollars, down from. predicted last quarter. So that's as much as $5 billion in a shortfall uh, they're now seeing. And some of that seems to be manufacturing delays and some issues there and some doses getting pushed out into next year. Uh, They're also saying that uh, because of a deal with the African Union and delivering more doses to lower income countries, uh, that the shift in how much uh, they're getting paid for these doses is changing too. So, you know, shifting out what the, the U.S. doses, which cost more into next year, kind of changes how much they're required. In revenue, but there's kind of a bigger question. You know, they gave 2022 guidance of uh, 17 billion to 22 billion dollars. Um, some are pointing out maybe that's a little bit lighter than the street expected, or at least modest in terms of their capacity, and that's kind of raising questions for demand next year for these vaccines in general. And you're seeing stocks across the board in this space get hit. Pfizer's down. Biotech was down 7% at one point on Thursday. Um, Novavax down, too. So just kind of questions about the duration, I think, of demand uh, in this space, which honestly, if we didn't need covid vaccines anymore, I think humanity would be pretty happy, but it's not so good for these stocks.
1: Yeah. So you're saying like these stocks have been bid up the valuations had been bid up, kind of assuming that covid vaccines were going to be a long term business uh, and maybe maybe they're not going to be as durable as people expected.
0: Right. And we'll have to see if it turns into a flu shot like market. Adam, there was some other news from Moderna this week in the therapeutic space. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah, it was sort of a a little bit of a minor update. You know, uh, Vertex had their third quarter earnings call this week, and they talked a lot about a breakthrough that they had, kind of a scientific breakthrough they had for the 10 percent of patients with cystic fibrosis who don't make any of that CFTR protein and therefore are really not Helped by all of the medicines that Vertex already sells to treat patients with with CF, and and so they're they've partnered with Moderna to uh, on a technology that try to that's going to basically create an inhalable mRNA medicine that these patients might be able to use to sort of get the same kind of benefit that all that the other ninety percent of CF patients get, and and the breakthrough is really around delivery uh, and trying to get that medicine into the lungs and that's been a real struggle for companies who are kind of who were looking at this target population and they say they've made a breakthrough now it's only in animals at this point they have not yet tested this in humans uh in, in actual patients but that probably will come next year so it's a really interesting development you know obviously vertex has been uh you know has a this blockbuster franchise with CF drugs uh, and you know they've been trying to figure out how to help that that last 10 percent um and also for then for moderna you know Obviously, we just as we discussed, Moderna is known now as a vaccine company, particularly around COVID. But, you know, the ultimate goal of the company is to use mRNA to also develop drugs and therapeutics. And this may be one promising avenue. A week after the White House all but abandoned its plans to get drug pricing reforms into President Biden's landmark domestic spending bill, previously bickering Democrats found some common ground.
0: The terms of the agreement are likely to disappoint the progressive wing of the party, and the deal has already infuriated the pharmaceutical lobby. But it appears, at least for now, that pricing reform is going to happen.
1: Stat Washington correspondent Rachel Kors has been covering the up and down saga. She joins us now to talk about it. Rachel, welcome back to the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. So let's start with which policies actually made it into the compromise package. So these
3: policies kind of fall into three main buckets. Um, The first bucket is... um, a policy that would allow Medicare to negotiate some drug prices, both for drugs that you get at the pharmacy counter and um, that you might get in the doctor's office. And Medicare could start negotiating um, those prices that would go into effect between nine and 12 years um, after the drugs are approved. And it's kind of limited to the most expensive drugs the first year, I think is um, 2025, it would be 10 drugs, and it would eventually kind of work up to 20. Um, and there are some mandatory kind of guardrails around um, that process. The second bucket is an out-of-pocket cap on um, seniors' drug costs that they pick up at the pharmacy counter. It'd be $2,000 per year starting in 2024 and spread out monthly. Um, And then there's also an out-of-pocket cap for um, insulin, both in Medicare and just in like commercial plans too. And the third bucket is um, penalties for drug makers' who um, hike prices faster than the rate of inflation. That's in Medicare and in commercial plans, too. So it doesn't necessarily keep drug makers from raising their prices, but at least creates a disincentive for some of the big um, kind of blockbuster like price hikes that we've seen um, in recent years.
1: So as we mentioned before, this effort seemed basically hopeless uh, just last week. So what happened in the ensuing days to rescue it?
3: Well, that's a good question. Um, one that I'm reporting out right now. Um, I think the White House last week was acknowledging this political reality that lawmakers have been negotiating for months. They couldn't come to a deal um, and they were really trying to get something out before President Biden kind of went abroad to, you know, Promote the United States. Um, that obviously didn't work out. Things fell apart. So they ended up having a little bit more time. Um, consumer groups like AARP came out really strong. You know, blasted the deal. They were really upset about this. And I think lawmakers too were faced with the prospects of their own defeat. You know, nobody really wanted to give much in negotiations. But when it came down to losing this policy entirely, I think you know it um, really incentivized people to come back to the table to give a little bit and to finally kind of make it happen.
0: Hmm. And so pharma, the the lobbying group for the pharmaceutical industry, has already come out strongly against the package, saying it, quote, threatens innovation and makes a broken healthcare system even worse. But we've seen a few Wall Street analysts actually concluding these reforms would have a negligible impact on the drug industry's bottom line. So what's your sense of just how impactful these policies might actually be?
3: You know, I. I think it will have somewhat of an impact on drug makers' bottom lines. Um, And I think the congressional, like, budget analysts have you know, kind of indicated that will probably be the case too. Will that cut to their bottom line come from their research budgets? That's not clear to me. Um, And I think they certainly can change their business practices to some degree to work around some of this, for example, with like the caps on price hikes. Maybe they could launch a drug a little bit higher and just have a little bit more predictability um, in the price hikes over time. Um, You know, those are all calculations they'll have to make. And just one more point that I wanted to highlight was that pharma is a trade Association, it's doom and gloom. They've been this way for a very long time to any change to the status quo. Um, But I think I'd be interested to see, you know, when we have earnings calls from individual drug makers, whether they're using that same rhetoric about innovation, you know, when they're when it really comes down to, you know, talking to their investors.
1: So, Richard, I wonder if you think the drug industry overplayed its hand here. You know, as you pointed out in the story this week, uh, drug companies had the chance to accept a more incremental bipartisan reform in the last Congress, but they stonewalled that. Are they kicking themselves now?
3: Yeah, that's a question we're kind of, um, you know, getting the sense from the pharmaceutical lobby right now. They don't think this is over yet. And I mean, to some degree, they're right. This policy is not signed into law. This bill has a long way to go, but it does have, you know, buy-in from the key players. So I think they, you know, haven't conceded defeat quite yet. I think they're definitely still going to try and turn the dials. Um, but there definitely are some lawmakers in the hallways with me who are kind of making the argument that, you know, if if Pharma had been a little bit more um, lenient kind of last Congress, they might have gotten a better deal and kind of been off the chopping block. Um, but I think it's just hard to predict the political environment is so strange right now. Things are so narrowly divided. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, They may have gotten a better deal before, but I think this outcome was just impossible to predict. And it's not like pharma to, you know, just roll over and, you know, let there be um, significant reforms, you know, if they um could have the chance to fight another day instead.
0: So what happens from here? Does this deal on drugs make it a foregone conclusion that the proposal will pass?
3: Um, there's so many different, like, huge policy areas in this domestic spending package. I mean, we're talking climate policy, universal pre-K, lots of other health care policy, you know, child care, tax policy. It's a, it's a big, big package. And there's a lot of other political dynamics that are still kind of playing out. I think Democrats do want to get this done. I think they realize that, you know it's going to be important for their political prospects going into um, the midterm elections next year. Um, So it definitely has momentum, but it's not done until it's done. um, And, you know, little tweaks can get made along the way. But it's certainly a big step forward. And one, I think that's um, it's closer than they've been to significant reform in this space for a very long time.
1: So, Rachel, we look forward to hearing uh, more updates from you about drug pricing legislation. Uh, Thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: We caught last week's show, you heard us chat briefly about the breaking news that John Maraginore, longtime CEO of Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, was stepping down after almost 20 years at the company.
1: Yeah, we promised to grab John and drag him onto the podcast to talk about his decision. And uh, here he is. Hey, John. Hey, guys. How are you?
0: We're good. So tell us about your decision to uh, leave. Why now?
2: Well, you know, Meg, after 19 amazing years of building Alnylam and bringing RNAi Therapeutics to patients around the world, I decided that this is the right time to start a new chapter. I'm excited about doing things in the industry in a in a different way, and that's why I made the change. Of course, I'm doing it at a time where Alnylam is in, in an incredibly strong position. It's sort of like having your kid finish college and you know get ready to go off into the real world. Uh, it's really that type of feeling. And obviously, a big part of that is having a great successor with Yvonne Greenstreet, who's going to be taking over the the CEO role at the beginning of next year.
1: So when you made your announcement last week, John, uh, Alnylam stock price fell. Um, And I don't know, maybe that's like an ego boost. People were like, can't imagine Alnylam without you. Um, The news seemed to take people by surprise. I wonder, uh, you know, were you surprised by the market's reaction?
2: You know, I was Adam. I, I didn't find it an ego boost at all, you know, uh, because <laughs> because I I do have uh significant interest in El Nilem, um stock performance uh as a as an employee as well. Um look, I I think it was a bit of a surprise and maybe we could have done a better job to help people understand the timing of of what I was thinking about, but look, I think obviously we've seen the stock recover. I have no doubt on where The stock is going to go longer term. It's a great company. It's got such great prospects, and you know the science will continue to to deliver and help patients. And if we do that, um, the the value will continue to grow as a company.
0: And tell us a little bit about Yvonne Greenstreet, your successor. um, How you decided on uh, Dr. Greenstreet, and you know whether she'll have kind of a different approach, you think, or just anything you can kind of tell us about her.
2: Well, Yvonne is amazing. she's she's um somebody i I had to try really, really hard to recruit about five years ago. Um, and she was at the time she had left Pfizer. She was independent. You know, I've always been always been a big admirer of her when i when I met her in at both at Pfizer and also at Gsk. And um, I was able to get her to join the team. and we brought her in as our chief operating officer. And then in twenty twenty, when Barry left, Barry Green left uh, as our president, I made Yvonne our president and Chief Operating Officer, and and obviously um, she was my appointed successor to be, um, and uh, terrific leader. She is going to really continue on the path that we have been set for uh, Alnylam, this new five-year strategy, Alnylam P to the Fifth by 25. She co-authored it with me, so she's completely bought into that strategy and that path forward, and she will lead it there. Um, what she will bring to the table is actually a lot of experience in growing and scaling global uh, complex biopharma companies, and that'll be something which will help l nylum for the future, for sure.
1: So, John, you know, the story of l Nylum and RNA interference, you know, it has been pretty well told. You know, under your watch, you guys managed to take this fledgling technology you know, it won a Nobel Prize, and you transformed it into actual medicines that are helping patients. You know, there's been so many ups and downs in all these years. And I wonder, looking back, was there like a single pivotal moment when you realized that this idea was going to work? Well,
2: you know, Probably my favorite moment in that regard, Adam, is in October of 2011 when uh, a small group of us, Akshay Vaishnar, head of R&D, and a few other colleagues, Barry was there, looked at the first set of data from a patient, um, patient 50-03, in a clinical study where we, for the first time, conclusively showed RNA interference happening in a human being with you know, transthyretin knockdown happening in that in that patient. And um it's a remarkable a remarkable event because it was really the landmark occasion when RNAI was shown to happen in a human. And um, that clearly opened the door for what happened thereafter, which was really amazing sets of data that came out from both that program but also other programs as well.
0: And on the flip side, of course, biotech is known for its sort of roller coaster nature. Do you ever have like a really dark day where you were just like, what have I gotten myself into?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, there's been many dark days and 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 several near-death moments, uh, Meg. And 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 the one, the one, I mean, I think the toughest one was in 2016, when we had a phase three trial blow up. Um, and we had to stop the phase three study for a program called Revu and that was due to a safety imbalance and m- mortality, specifically imbalance in a phase three trial, and that was very, very difficult. But it, it's interesting what what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, per the Nietzsche quote, and it is true that that you know that experience, which was very, very difficult, only strengthened El Nylum for the future to obviously weather the storm uh, when when the inevitable adversities happen, which which um, did at El Nylum and do at almost every biotech company.
1: So, John, you're still a young guy, and I imagine that your wife will kill you if you just hang around the house.
2: So, so what are you, you going to do? You know, I'm I'm not going to retire, Adam. Thank you know, and, and my wife would kill me if I stayed around in the house for sure. But I'm I'm going to do I'm going to do things a little bit differently. I'm I'm you know, first of all, planning on helping um, mentor uh, leaders for the future. I you know, look the the industry has got so much science, it's got so much money, and the number one barrier between all that science, all that money and cures and treatments for patients is people. And I I believe I can be a multiplier um, on, on you know, mentoring people and helping people as new emerging leaders in the industry. And that's going to be a passionate area that I focus on for sure. I'll probably also help in in, you know, on some boards and I'll also help a little bit on on new company formation with some venture groups out there. But look, at the at the end of the day, my passion is really helping the next generation of leaders, um, you know, emerge from this industry so that we can bring this great science forward and help, help patients for the future.
0: I'm wondering what you see in terms of the characteristics of those next great leaders. You know, it's been difficult in this space, this combination of science and business. It's been a white guy, you know, led industry. You guys are changing that with your selection of Dr. Greenstreet, but not a lot of companies have been doing that. Do you see more diversity in the up and coming crop of future leaders of this industry?
2: I, I do, Meg, but we have to do a lot to make that happen. You know, obviously it's it's exciting that Yvonne is going to take on the leadership of, of Alnylam as a diverse leader but we need to see more of that and and we need to be very explicit about going to HBCUs and other other you know places where we can find diverse talent to bring them into the industry and help them become part of what we do I think that's critical for the future, and and certainly my mentoring activities will also focus on bringing mentor, bringing diverse talent forward and helping them for the future as well.
1: So, John, you're you're a guy who's not uh, not shy about speaking his mind on on various topics. So, we, we thought we'd just get your hot takes on some of the things going on, including uh, you know the the recent drug pricing legislation that seems to have now is now making its way through Congress. A- any thoughts on that? On the implications for the industry? Well, look, I, I
2: think we we don't yet know the details around all of it, so it's hard to fully comment until we see those details. I can tell you two things. Um, one is I'm pleased to see um, patient-out-of-pocket costs being capped as part of that legislation. That's, that's critical. That's the only way we can ultimately assure that the medicines that we bring forward achieve access and affordability for patients that need them. And um, that's a big, big positive, I think, out of this and And I'll just say one other thing, you know, Adam, is I'm not shedding any tears around caps on on drug price increases either. Um, I think that's been a practice that has been um, inappropriate um, for for all, for too many years, and we at Alnylam have a pledge not to increase drug prices above CPIU as a company. so I, I think I think, look, let's see what it looks like at the end of the day. I do think it's going to be good for the innovator. Uh, because it it's gonna it's gonna change the dynamics of how pharma can grow through more traditional practices that have existed before, and it's gonna require the the broader biopharmaceutical industry to look at the innovator as a way of growth, a way of achieving growth. And I think that's going to be good for biotech. It really do,
0: in terms of the limits on um price increases, do you think that the industry or some people in the industry will respond by just setting higher initial <laughs> list prices of drugs? And do we have to some extent, have we seen that already?
2: Well, I don't I think there's a threshold for 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 what you can do there, Meg. I mean, I, I think we've seen some examples of of inappropriately high launch prices that that have been faced with. Um, with strong pushback from the payer community. So it's not like, you know... Whoever
0: could you be talking about?
2: A, well, I mean, I'll go back. I won't name names, but I can. we can go back to the PCSK9 story with the antibodies. And we saw a very clear example of that um, resulting in, in you know, a challenging commercialization um, effort overall. So I think the dynamic is already set in, in a landscape around how launch prices have to be consistent with the value delivered. So I think that's... I don't think we're going to find the industry... Perversely changing that dynamic by you know addressing any drug pricing legislation by doing that. It, it, we just live in a world in which value has to be demonstrated at the end of the day and I, and I think any reasonable company will not be uh, unreasonable in how they think about launch prices
1: all right so John, so now we have you and you're you know you're you're leaving out now and we we thought we'd ask you a few fun questions to kind of close out this interview. We did this, you know, we did this with your former colleague, Barry Green, as well, when, when he when he left uh, the company. So, Meg, why don't you kick this off?
0: OK, here's a question I want to know. You've said you've told us what you plan to do, but let's say that, you know, the bargain for leaving on island was you had to be CEO of another biopharma company right now. Which one would you choose?
2: Oh, my God. Well, you know, if Len Schleifer would retire, I would take on Regeneron.
0: Wow. wow. Why?
2: Very
1: interesting.
0: You'd have to work with George Yankopoulos, or you'd get to work with George Yankopoulos. I, I work with him now.
2: I love George. <laughs> no, I think I think Regeneron is one of the other great science-based companies out there and and it would certainly be one that I would I would uh, enjoy working with George on.
1: All right, so I mentioned Barry Green and you know, so I asked him to, to help me out with a, with a question for you. And he asked me to ask you to tell us about the last day. Of Al Nylam's IPO roadshow back in two thousand and four, and specifically, how many glasses of wine did you drink that day? <laughs> well, I mean, look, it, it, the last
2: day of our IPO roadshow was hilarious, Adam, because we felt that we had done the deal, that we had closed up the offering, and and look, it, it was back in a very tough IPO market. We raised thirty two million dollars on a ninety eight million dollar pre money valuation, which is a which is laughable in, in, in today's biotech environment. And, um, you know, we ended up going to lunch. We thought everything was done. Patty, our CFO, uh, at the time and I were, were there with the bankers and we're having a nice lunch at San Pietro in, in, in Manhattan. And, um, yeah, we had some wine. We had a couple glasses of (laughs) wine, but then we, we had to go back and, and do the pricing call. And then we found out that we don't have a book. We did not have a book. So we had to do some last minute calls to People that were on the fences, and uh, we were we were able to complete the IPO, but it wasn't it wasn't easy.
1: So you don't remember how many glasses of wine were drunk that day.
2: Well, I, I'm going to guess you know over the course of a lunch, maybe I'm going to guess two. <laughs>
0: I'm going to guess a few more were drawn yeah, after I you just had say, that I entire say that's
2: <laughs> Many more after that. Many more, Meg. Uh,
0: here's another question. Um, Adam pulled a description of you from uh, Kevin Starr, the venture capitalist, uh, from a profile that was written by Ben Fidler, um, who describes you as, quote, John was the prototypical geeky scientist at the bench. He communicated that way. He looked the part. He was very studious. He says you used to wear khaki pants or jeans and cowboy boots, and you'd like hitch up the pants really high and wear your belt around your chest. So our question for you is: When did you become the snappy dresser that you now are, and what changed?
2: <laughs> well, I I think it I think it comes down to my wife, Christine. She she's the one that did that, so I owe her all the credit for that.
1: Yeah, she's definitely improved your dress cut. Your, your dress low bar, you know I mean? I, low bar, Adam. I have to say we we were we were th- talking about this earlier because like. You always got those snappy jackets on. You know, you're you're always looking good.
2: <laughs> Thank you, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's sometimes sometimes you need a little GQ with the IQ and EQ.
0: Good line. Well, John, it was great to have you and we look forward to getting to continue to hear about what you're gonna do and we'll hope we hope you'll come back.
2: Absolutely. And stay tuned. It'll be fun.
1: That does it for another episode of the Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Thampanato and Alyssa Ambrose. And our executive producer is Rick Burke.
1: And our theme music is by Brian Joel.
0: And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you think anything's going to change with drug pricing. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at And
1: if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast.
0: See you next week.